from the authors of Author Masterminds. This is Mysterious. Mystery surrounds us every day. Join us and listen to true stories of mystery, from human behavior to nature and the physical environment to paranormal experiences. The stories are true, even if we can't explain them. Most parents can imagine no nightmare worse than the disappearance of a child. But how can a parent possibly cope when both of their children vanish, swallowed by the Alaska wilderness? Hi, welcome to Mysterious. I am Robin Bearfield, and I will be your host for this episode. I'm an Alaska wilderness mystery author, and I also write and podcast about true crime and mysteries in Alaska. Sometime during the late night hours of September 5th, or the early morning hours of September 6th, 1978, Scott Fandel, 13, and Amy Fandel, 8, disappeared from their Sterling, Alaska home on the Kenai Peninsula, 136 miles or 219 kilometers south of Anchorage. The mystery of what happened to the Fandel children has baffled Alaska state troopers for over four decades. How can two kids vanish from their home without a trace? At 10.30 p.m. on September 5, 1978, Scott and Amy Fandel seemed safe and happy. Less than four hours later, they were gone, never to be seen again. Where did they go? What could have happened to them? Investigators spent thousands of hours running down hundreds of leads, which led nowhere. One former Alaska state trooper said they chased quirks, and spiderweb leads, but they never got any closer to finding the children. The children's parents had recently suffered through a bitter divorce. Their father, Roger Fandale, loved his kids, but was unfaithful to his wife, Margaret. Margaret began drinking more alcohol as Roger strayed and finally left her. Margaret, a waitress, worked long hours to pay the bills, and when Roger moved to Arizona, The kids often stayed unsupervised at their home in a small cabin in the woods near Sterling, Alaska. Scott Vandell was only 13 years old, but according to those who knew him, he was mature for his age and a good babysitter for his little sister. September 5, 1978, promised to be a big day for the Vandell children because their mother's sister, their aunt Kathy Schoenfelder, was moving from Illinois to live with them. Kathy arrived on schedule, and after dinner at their cabin, the family drove to a bar called Good Time Charlie's. The bar had video games to entertain the kids, and Scott and Amy drank Cokes while their mother and aunt drank beers and talked. Around 10 p.m., Margaret and Kathy took the kids home and then drove to another bar. Before the night was over, the ladies visited at least one more bar. Margaret told the kids not to stay up late, and Kathy told them to lock the door. 
This last comment caused Scott to laugh because the lock on the cabin door was broken. The Fandel's cabin sat in a grove of birch trees. It could barely be seen from the road, but a bright light mounted on a pole illuminated the front of the cabin. The Fandel's closest neighbors were Nancy and Bill Lupton and their five children, who lived in a Quonset hut approximately 200 yards from the Fandel's cabin. The Fandel and Lupton children were good friends and spent most of their time together. As soon as Margaret and Kathy dropped off Scott and Amy at home, the kids walked over to the Lupton's hut to play with the neighbor kids. According to Nancy Lupton, Scott and Amy seemed in great spirits that evening and were very excited about their aunt coming to live with them. The kids played together but were making too much noise, so after a while Nancy sent the Fandel children home. Nancy said it was a typical evening and she heard nothing unusual. Local residents driving home noted lights blazing in the Fandel cabin around 11.45 p.m. This was not unusual because both Scott and Amy were afraid of the dark and usually turned on every light in the house. When Margaret and Kathy arrived home around 2 a.m., though, the cabin appeared dark and empty. A package of macaroni and an open can of tomatoes lay on the kitchen counter and a pot of hot water sat on the stove. Scott liked to eat a macaroni snack before going to bed and had apparently started to make his snack when something interrupted him. Margaret thought the kids were probably spending the night with the Lupton children, so she and Kathy went to bed. Margaret had to be at work at 8.30 the following morning, and once she arrived at the restaurant where she worked as a waitress, she called the school to leave a message for Amy, telling her she was in trouble for not stopping by home before going to school. The school informed Margaret that Amy was not at school that morning. Margaret began to worry about Amy, but her boss would not let her leave until the afternoon. Margaret said later she was concerned but not alarmed by Amy's absence at school. Meanwhile, Kathy became worried when the kids did not arrive home on the school bus. The Lupton children told her Scott and Amy had not been in school all day. Kathy called Margaret, and Margaret raced home. Now she felt frightened and knew something was wrong. She frantically called the kids' friends, and when she learned no one had seen Scott and Amy all day, Margaret called the Alaska State Troopers at 5.14 p.m. on September 6th, at least 15 hours after the children disappeared. At first, Margaret suspected her ex-husband. She couldn't reach him in Arizona, but when she talked to his family, they said he did not have the children. Roger Fandel had a reputation as a tough guy, but he loved his kids, and by the weekend he'd flown to Alaska to help search for them. Over the next decade, Roger would be considered a person of interest in this case. If he didn't snatch the kids himself, then perhaps someone else kidnapped the kids for him. As the years passed, though, the troopers eventually dismissed Roger as a suspect. 
Teachers and friends remember Amy Fandel as sweet and beautiful, and they characterize Scott as smart and Amy's devoted protector. If someone tried to take Amy against her will, Scott would have intervened. Troopers found bullet casings outside the Fandel cabin, but no one could tell them if the casings were new or had been there for a long time. No one reported hearing shots the night the kids disappeared. Volunteers scoured the woods for any sign of Fandel children, and the troopers brought in search dogs from Anchorage. Investigators searched ferries leaving Homer and informed the Canadian Unmounties to be on the lookout for someone crossing the border with the children. The kids disappeared at the height of the oil boom during the construction and early operation of the Alaska oil pipeline. The bars on the Kenai Peninsula were awash with the dodgy characters. Did someone at Good Time Charlie's hear Margaret and Kathy talk about taking the children back to the cabin and leaving them alone for a few hours? Troopers tried to run down every lead, but there seemed to be no end of suspects, and tips flowed in from every direction. Let me take a short break. Mysterious is sponsored by Author Masterminds and Readers and Writers Book Club. We invite you to join the club where you can chat with Author Masterminds, read free content pieces and serialize books, and buy books at 50% off the list price. Please check the podcast show notes for links to the book club and Author Masterminds. Early in the investigation, Trooper Sergeant Tom Sumi found a witness who said the night the children vanished, he saw a black sedan speed away from the road, running in front of the Fandel cabin. The witness thought the driver of the sedan might be a vandal or a thief, so he followed the sedan and watched the driver pull into a driveway and shut off the car's headlights. The witness drove down the road and then turned around, just in time to see the black sedan pull out of the driveway and speed away. Sumi learned the car belonged to two carnival workers from the East Coast who had visited the Kenai in late August. Margaret had allowed the men to crash at her house for a night. Sumi felt he had a solid lead and ran down the men in Maryland. The men admitted they had been in the area of the Fandel cabin and had considered stopping but they said they were in Sterling on September 6th, not September 5th. The men worked at the Alaska State Fair on September 4th and picked up their paychecks in Anchorage on September 6th. When Sumi re-interviewed the witness who'd followed the black sedan, the man admitted he could have seen the car the night after the children vanished. Troopers did not dismiss the carnival workers as possible suspects, but they've never found any evidence to incriminate the men. Troopers discovered another promising lead during the first days of the investigation. On the night the children disappeared, at one of the bars Margaret and Kathy visited, a friend introduced Margaret to a man involved in the Anchorage sex trade. Mr. W., as he was called in the newspaper article, was in the process of moving one of his motels from Anchorage to Soldotna, 
a town near Sterling. A few days later, when the public first heard about the disappearance of the Fandel children, Mr. W. showed up at Margaret's house with one of her sisters. Apparently, the two had taken the same plane from Anchorage, and he offered to give her a ride to Margaret's house. Troopers immediately focused their interest on Mr. W., and when he offered a $5,000 reward for information regarding the whereabouts of the children, their suspicions only grew. Soon, rumors circulated about a pornography ring in Sterling, and people wondered if the Fandale children had been sold into sexual slavery. When Mr. W. buried his car on the property where he was building his motel, troopers obtained a search warrant, dug up the vehicle, and popped the trunk, expecting to find the bodies of two children. The trunk was empty, and Mr. W. explained he simply grew tired of the car and had to put it somewhere. With no other evidence leading to Mr. W., the troopers dismissed him as a suspect. Numerous other leads plagued investigators on this case. Roger Fandell's family wasted no time pointing their fingers at each other. Roger suspected his uncle Herman had killed the kids, while Herman suggested Roger had done something to them. When investigators dug up Herman's yard to look for the bodies of Scott and Amy, Herman wept about the public humiliation. People hounded Margaret and blamed her for the disappearance of her children, and psychics continuously called her with false leads. Margaret spiraled into depression and alcohol abuse after her children disappeared. In 1980, she moved back to the Midwest, met a nice man, quit drinking, and got remarried. When interviewed in 1988, she said she still hoped Scott and Amy would return to her someday. She wanted to believe her kids were still alive. In an interview near the same time, Roger did not sound as hopeful. He thought Scott would have contacted him if he could. You don't have to spend much time online to find active discussions about this case. Margaret's relatives maintain a Facebook group devoted to the kids and their case. They hope to learn anything which might lead to finding Scott and Amy. Margaret's brother believes Scott was killed soon after the children were abducted, but he thinks Amy is still alive. Others in the family do not agree with him. In these online discussion groups, Internet sleuths are quick to blame Margaret for leaving the children alone in an unlocked cabin and then not checking on them when she got home. But others point out that Scott was a mature 13-year-old and certainly capable of babysitting his little sister. Also, I doubt many people in Sterling, Alaska, locked their doors in 1978, even if they had locks. Maybe Margaret should have checked on the kids sooner than she did, but no one is perfect, and Margaret worked hard just to keep a roof over her family's head. The one element I'm haunted by in this case is the pan of water on the stove. When Margaret and Kathy arrived home around 2 a.m., they found a package of macaroni and an open can of tomatoes on the counter and a pan of water on the stove. Some accounts I've read say the water was boiling, 
but others indicate the pan felt hot or warm. How hot was the water? Or if it was boiling, was there much water left in the pan? It seems to me the temperature of the water offers a significant clue to the time the children disappeared. Did Scott leave the house so quickly he didn't have time to turn off the stove? If he did turn off the burner, how long would it take the water to cool? Perhaps the troopers used this information to narrow down the time frame for when the children disappeared, but nothing I've read suggests they considered it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read stories about murder and mystery in Alaska, check out my true crime book, Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Also, don't forget to take a look at the show notes for links to the Author Masterminds website and the Readers and Writers Book Club. You will also find links to my books there. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss a single episode of Mysterious, where my fellow authors and I explore mysteries in the world around us.